0: fantastic. Hello? Why don't you pat the person next to you on the back? That was absolutely fantastic. Encourage them in what they did. (laughs) Now, folks, we're in the midst of a series that we're going to come back to. It's good just to do three or four at a time and then go into something else and then come on. And we're going to come back to what we've been doing about identity. But I've been really... um, hmm. Moved, I guess, to to look at this series that we want to do on the bicultural journey that, particularly Christians, but really our whole country uh, needs to go on. Um, I think God is is really active in our land about uh, racial harmony, racial togetherness, the church being able to embrace people of every race. Revelation says every tribe, every tongue, so that means. Every culture, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, people being able to have their own language, not lose it, not be what we would call assimilated into one language, but respecting cultures, understanding cultures. Yeah. You know, I was thinking as I was down here uh, just on praying earlier, um, there was a time when I would never have felt I could ever preach on the Wa- Treaty of Waitangi because it's too close to the bone for New Zealanders go to somewhere that's controversial. I remember when we started, Morris Atkinson and I started gathering pastors together in this region here, and I would watch Morris, who was 10 years my senior, um, uh, speaking to pastors, and I would think, flip, what courage. And I remember thinking I could never do that. Now, I share this because I think some of you know things in God that you're supposed to be going on to, that God's got ahead of you, and you think, how could I possibly do that? How could I possibly be able to um, stand and not fall and not just cave in to the culture and the trends that are sweeping through your school or they're sweeping through your workplace or they're just sweeping across Western culture to embrace this and that? And, and how could I ever stand up? And yet God may be saying in your heart, I've got something special for you. And God is well able to get you to the place where you can speak into the things and do the things that he's actually got for you to do. Amen. Is that encouraging? Yeah. It's just, its you think you can't, but in God you can. Yeah. It's just there's a growth thing that's got to go on inside you. Yeah. This sermon today is um, too long, so I split it into two, and I'm going I'm to preach half a message today. So bear, bear that in terms of the context. It's, it's important to see it. But really what I want to highlight is that justice matters to God, and therefore it should matter to us. And the thing that I want to really bring out today is that there were three partners in the Treaty of Waitangi. There were not just the Crown and Maori people. There were three entities partnering in the Treaty of Waitangi. And what the third entity was the church. The church was so involved in the very center of the Treaty of Waitangi that we were a third entity, and that means we are still a third entity in the bringing together of racial harmony within our own country. It's still God's plan. And I'm not meaning to offend anybody in this series, but I probably will offend a number of you. And one of the reasons that you might become offended with me is because as New Zealanders, we've only recently, and I mean 30-odd years or so, been willing to embrace our history. When most of us went to school, we we were never taught what actually took place. And so there's this big void for many of us. And when we start to find out that so much injustice has taken place, it throws up questions, it makes us fearful, and we can have disbelief, we can feel threatened. But there's much in our Christian history of of Maori, and when Europeans started to come to this country, because of, of course Maori had been here about 800 years uh, of living in the country already, um, that Christians can absolutely genuinely be proud of. And God highly prizes justice. And in His time, He will bring justice on the earth. And when I'm not talking about the millennium. I'm talking about in his time into nations, he will bring justice upon the earth. Have a look at Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. It says, The Lord has told us what is right and what he demands. See that justice is done. Let mercy be your first concern and humbly obey your God. Other translations put it in a slightly different way, but those three things of justice, mercy, and walking humbly, with God and with people are still the things that God is saying. Now that's in the Old Testament, but it's incredibly relevant for us today as well. And when we looked earlier in the year at Luke chapter 4, at Jesus' mandate in Luke chapter 4 verse 18, um, we saw that it wasn't just his mandate, but his on- it's his ongoing mandate for his people, in other words, us as the church. And this is what it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set those that are oppressed free. And that's our mandate. God cares about justice. And when we learn and we discover stuff about our own history, we not only find some amazing stories that encourage us, we also find that there is a people who have been greatly repressed in our country. And because the truth of what our history is wasn't taught in schools, when I grew up, I just never knew a lot of things. And understanding is absolutely essential for us to be able to judge and assess and respond correctly. Understanding is often used in the same sentence as wisdom. I never noticed this, and you may not have either, but the Bible often has understanding and wisdom together. We would know that we've got to seek wisdom in life if we're going to do well, but the Bible says understanding is just as important. We need to know the facts. We need to know history. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 6 says, My son or my daughter, if you accept my words and store up my uh, commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, have you done that? Have you gone outside and said, God, I need to understand? Crying out aloud. Yeah. Not just for wisdom, but for understanding. And if you will look for it as you would look for silver or search for it as you would for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So you see, for us, we've got a justice mandate as people to make sure that justice happens for everyone. But we need to do so from a basis of knowledge, from understanding. Does that make sense? Now, I was born into a very white Christchurch in 1956. My mountain (coughs) is Mount Hutt, and my river is the Rakaia. And then when I was 13, my father won a job at Crownland Potteries in Auckland, and we left the Wellington region where I was living, and I entered a school called Kelston Boys' School, where I would estimate the the population was about 30% Māori. And I noticed that the Mo- it was the first time that I'd come into contact with large numbers of Māori people. And I noticed that the Māori boys hung out together, kind of gang-like. Everybody knew everybody. They were all accepted one to another It's part of the great part of their culture. And when fights erupted on the field, as they often or sometimes would on the bottom field, it seemed that there was always a Māori guy, at least one, involved in that fight. And in my own skirmishes and fights, where maybe I was put upon or set upon by someone, it always involved someone who was Maori. And many seemed to enjoy just the physicality of fighting. And I've got to admit that it gave me a certain attitude or prejudice against Maori young men. And I didn't understand when I entered training college into a largely Pākehā institution in fact, almost completely Pākehā institution, this clear flow of desire that was coming from the, the tutors and the, the um, educationalists to embrace all things Māori. and There were songs, there was language, and they were always talking about the treaty and why the treaty mattered. And we would have formal meetings sometimes uh, in the evenings, and the speaker would get up, and he would the speaker, he or she, would begin with a mihi, and they would talk in Maori at the beginning to a completely Pākehā audience. And I'm sitting there as a 20-year-old young man thinking, why are we doing this? What relevance has this got to the crowd? And I didn't understand why the Maori marched on Parliament, and a woman by the name of Fina Cooper, who became a dame uh, for just her service to New Zealand. She's one of the outstanding New Zealanders of of last century, of the 20th century. Why this elderly woman started walking from the top of the North Island down to Parliament, and then thousands and thousands of other people joined her. And that's them crossing the the Harbour Bridge. I thought, why are they doing this? And then I didn't understand Bastion Point and Joe Hawke. And I watched it all on TV in my 20s, and, and uh, yeah, around about the time of t- uh, being 20, as, as hundreds of police, Muldoon bust in enough police to stand shoulder to shoulder around the whole of Bastion Point and slowly move into the Maori population who were living there and then pull everything apart and and arrest so many people and take down the uh, protests that had been there. But you see, what I didn't understand was in the late 40s or 50s, how the government and the council had come to a village that was in this beautiful little spot on the beach there. I think it's Oraki uh, there, a Maori village, and they'd come in and they'd just burn the people's houses. I didn't understand that. And they said, we've got to get rid of the Maori village that's here, because the queen's coming and it looks like a slum. And Joe had been a little boy at that stage watching his house and everyone else's house being burnt to the ground. So I could understand when I finally found that out, why they went to Bastion Point when Moss Baldoon said, let's put houses on it. Let's sell the whole thing. And the Maori stood up and said, no, it's ours. You can't do that. And they were arrested. And Tom Scott did this great cartoon at the very end after the land had been given back to the Maori. And and you know, what they wanted was their mana. The land's not off uh, permission for anyone who's of any other nationality. It's a public park. But Tom Scott did a great cartoon and said the last protester, and it was Muldoon saying, no. (laughs) I didn't understand that. And then I didn't understand when Maori were finally Maori were finally getting um, uh, recompense for in the through the Treaty of Waitangi. Why they were marching again, and and the Treaty of Waitangi Tribunal, and why they were marching again and saying, no, 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 I didn't understand that there was a cap that had been put on the amount of money that was given. And when you divided it all out, that billion dollars, you divided it all out, tribes would be given about one one one-thousandth of the cost of what was actually taken from them wrongly. Now, we in Christchurch know about insurance companies The thing I don't like about the All Blacks is that they wear A-I-G. And we know what it is to say we deserve what you have promised and what you said was right. We deserve a rebuild. What would you have done if eight years ago you had been offered one one one-thousandth of what your house was worth? I didn't understand that. And I didn't understand why then Naitahu changed completely and they said, okay, we'll accept it. thought, what's that about? How come they were against it? Now they're for it. Did, didn't understand that at all. You know, when I was saved in 1972, basically the church was teaching that everything Maori, ca- tattoos, carvings, everything cultural was demonic. You needed to abandon that. You needed to renounce that. You needed to basically become like us, and us was largely European or Pakeha. You know, YWAM, when they would get on an in New Zealand jet in those days, you would hear snap, 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 snap as they went down the plane because they were breaking all the tickies because they used to give in New Zealand used to give plastic tickies, and YWAM was breaking the curse off New Zealanders by snapping all the tickies that were being given by New Zealand. And I had no idea when I went on as a young pastor into going into prison ministry a time or two why it was a sea of brown faces, why Māori were 15% of the population but full in prisons. It's well over 50%. And then I began to notice the power, I would say the mana, of Maori evangelists to be able to speak the gospel. I met some of these powerful guys in their prime, people like Murray Thompson and Bob Kingy and Jack Mihari and Jack Lloyd. And then I began to hear snippets of news that once there had been a revival in this country that was more than the Billy Graham, and Billy Graham coming was amazing. Many, many thousands of people became Christians with Billy Graham. But I heard about a time when. Tens of thousands and tens of thousands and tens of thousands of Maori people came to Christ. And they, were, they came to Christ largely through Maori evangelists. And I haven't got time today to speak very much about that. But you know, when, when Henry Williams, the first uh, white person to uh, go down to the East Cape of New Zealand, he, when he got there, he found a church that would hold a thousand people in it. Double this. Think of it. And they estimated that there were 8,500 Maori Christians on the East Cape because of the amazing evangelists and leaders and apostles that had risen up within the body of Christ in Maoridom. And I began to hear these things. And I would go on surfing holidays, and especially down the East Cape or up into the uh, Naapui area up in the top of the North Island, and I'd see marais that not only have the meeting house, but right next to it, they have a chapel a Christian church. And I think, flip, maybe it's true that Christianity was so impacting upon Maori culture, so embraced that this amazing revival actually took place. And recently, I've been meeting Maori leaders in my role as as, um, part of the oversight of the Baptist movement, and I've been so impressed by them. And they know their story. They know about the injustice And yet, they speak without bitterness. And I think, how do you do that? They're actually hopeful and joyful in Christ, and they're wise and they're mature mature beyond me, and they're both men and women, and I think, man, you guys are an amazing example of what a Kiwi is like, what someone who, who, who loves the Lord can become. You see, I believe there's a fresh wind of the Spirit blowing upon New Zealand, upon Māori and Pākehā things. And with that, I would say all the other races as well, because actually God is, in, is interested in multiculturalism, but we have a history that needs to be understood, and, and, and it's basically between English people and of English origin and the Māori people of, of this land. And I just wonder whether God has always intended that Māori and Pākehā together would be better than Maori or Pākehā. And so he brought these English immigrants and the Maori people together, and he's always planned that we would become a better people, united, than we could even be separated. I wonder if that could be true. What if our destiny is still to showcase to the world what racial respect and harmony can look like as as different nations can work together in a world that's fighting and pulling itself apart in so many places. What if God did something within little old Aotearoa, New Zealand, and and we, we became a showcase to the world of what respecting different races could be? But it can't happen unless we actually get understanding of the beginnings because, like it or not, we carry prejudice. Yeah. I remember my mother telling me a story. She was living in Omaru, and uh, her uncle, her, her uh, brother in law, um, went to get some milk. And he was a real long time, finally came back, and the family said to him, Why'd you take so long? And he said, I, he said, I had to go to the, not the dairy up the top, but the one way down the road because there was a bee Maori in that dairy serving behind the counter knowing or not knowing we can carry prejudice that just affects the way that things are and the atmosphere that's there you know New Zealand culture is embracing Maori words and Maori ways and Maori culture's culture more than ever ever before have you noticed it? Have you noticed that? A friend of mine has been six years in China. He just came back and he said to me, John, what's going on? He said, there's Maori words being used everywhere, on the news, all sorts of things. If they, people can, they'll put a Maori word in to, to be able to say it. And I said, oh, it's just this, the flow of what's happening in our culture. We're coming together more. We're using each other's languages more. We're honoring uh, the Maori people more. And I believe it's God-inspired. I believe it's sweeping across the church just as it's sweeping across our whole nation and the secular parts of our nation. You know, I was having um, a lunch with Gideon and Catherine from Harmony Church just this week. And, and Catherine, as we, we were just talking about what we were preaching about and things, and, and they were listening to me t- talking about the series that's coming. And she said, you know, I can't believe it. She said, this is the fourth time that people have been telling me this things. in just the last two weeks. I've been hearing that same message of God touching and bringing our cultures together more. It's God's Holy Spirit doing it. I believe the All Blacks are part of that. I believe sport's part of that. I believe international travel is part of that. You know, if you're overseas and you hear something Maori, it might be a song, it might be a haka, it might be a, a custom, it might be a tattoo on someone's arm. You you just pump up with pride and you go, oh, you're a Kiwi. I'm from New Zealand as well. You know, I remember Morris Atkinson saying he was in a, a prayer meeting a decade or more ago in, in the in the US at, at one of the big, I think, I help conventions, and, and people were praying in tongues, and all of a sudden, someone started singing out a call like you would hear going on to a marae from one of the kuia, and, and, and he said, uh, the person had no idea what they were doing, but his ears just went, wow, that's New Zealand. And he's listening to this call onto the Mirai. And then, and then he has this impression that, that, that God's face is, is coming closer to him like this. And the person who's praying for him says, it sounds weird, but I just feel God is, God's face, is, he's pressing his face against your face. Do you know what that is? It's called a hongi. It's where you breathe together the breath of life with one another, and God was taking something that is so culturally New Zealand, the Yanks would never have got it. It just went right over their head. But anyone that was a Kiwi, immediately, Morris said just, just tingles went up his whole body as, as he realized what God was doing, and this, this wonderful custom that was saying to Morris, you're Kiwi, you're, this is who you are, and I love you. You know, I believe the wind of the spirit blew upon the educationalists of the 70s uh, when, they, when they were standing up and saying, the treaty matters, the treaty matters, and they were teaching all of us as, as te- uh, teachers to be, that we would stand for the treaty as well. And I don't know whether they even had any Maori friends at all, but, but it was trendy. Everybody was in education was talking about the treaty, and they still are. I believe it was the wind of the spirit upon these people at that time. I believe the wind of the spirit blew on the New Zealand government in 1975 to start the Treaty of Waitangi Tribunal and address some of the wrongs with some recompense for what has taken place. You know, if we did not have the Treaty of Waitangi Tribunal, Tribunal, we would have far more violence in our country today. I don't know if you're a clicked into what is happening around the world. South Africa is an example. But it's because of the willingness of the government to address and to hear, and to understand, and then to be able to give back, and give mana, and give financial ability for tribes, and iwi, and hapu, to be able to um, see their, their people rise um, in, in, in their, their, their standing, and, and to come out of poverty, and to get into education, and to rise within our culture, that, that has been such a wonderful thing. And do you know that every treaty claim that's signed by the government, when the government ministers go there, there is a place where they thank the tribe, thank the iwi for the graciousness and the patience in not choosing a violent way, but choosing the way of peace and believing that the government will honor what it said. It's always part of it. This is to a warlike people whose annual pattern was to go fight each other over perceived real or wrong, wrong, right, wrongs. Utu. Something happened. I know that the wars took place from, from uh, 45 to 75, but something happened in the Maori culture in the, in the 30s after the musket wars had taken place and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of warriors had died um, as Ngapui and others um, just took revenge for, for things that had taken place. The Maori people accepted the way of peace. I am so grateful. New Zealand can be so grateful that they have not given that up. And they have said, what our, what our ancestors have done, we will stand on that ground. And do you know, I think it's such a humorous thing that one of the greatest warriors, one of the people who was most feared in his day was Tirapraha, And one of the greatest leaders for Christianity was Tirapraha's son, wow. Tamihana. And, and Te Rappraha could not convince his boy to go back into battle with him. He said, no, I'm a Christian. I'm going the way of peace. Wow. And so this man gets older and older. But he sees his son getting stronger and wiser. And he, and he leads many people in the Maori. Uh, he sets up a whole structure of leading people into the way of peace. Isn't that God? Yeah. That God would choose the son of one of the greatest warriors in, of, uh, for, for um, warrior stuff. <laughs> and just turn it around. That's what God's done. There's so many stories. We'll get onto some of those next time. I believe that the wind of the Spirit blew upon the government in 1974 when they made Waitangi Day a public holiday for New Zealand. And I believe the church and Christians have a significant part yet to play in God's ongoing restoration program for race relations in New Zealand. And as I'm going to show, the church had a part in 1840, and therefore it has a part in 19, uh, sorry, 2018, (laughs) and on. There are things that only we as Christians can do. The government can legislate things, but Christians can do it. Because God says every tribe, every nation, every language, in other words, their culture will still be there in heaven. And we are not to suppress it and to say there's only one dominant culture, join us, or, or go without. No, we're to encourage one another. We're to see a new way of relating across every race, but we need to see it between us and, and Maori. Wow. See, the wind of God is blowing upon us to get an understanding of this. I encourage you to read history. There's some great books of what has taken place. Now, let me just say, none of us caused the historic injustices of the past, so breathe a sigh of relief. It's not our fault. We are not guilty. Say to the person next to you, you're not guilty. (laughs) We're not responsible for the past. But we can understand, and we can grow, and we can challenge our own prejudices, and we can walk humbly in our own way of walking when we have understanding in the way that we will relate to other people, particularly Maori people in our own nation of New Zealand in the future. And there are extremes, and I'm not for all the extremes. You'll hear extreme voices. You know them. They're probably playing in your head things people have said, oh, I don't agree with that. I think we can find a middle ground that we can agree with yeah. and walk forward. Yeah. Let me share just a little bit of history. Um, Christians were part of the official organization of the Treaty of Waitangi. New Zealand was actually the last nation colonized by Britain. And Britain was hesitant to claim New Zealand as theirs due to the rampant excesses and the horrific and calamitous results for indigenous peoples being colonized in the past. In Australia, for instance, Aborigines were shot as sport. And the land, when it was taken, was declared to have no inhabitants. And Britain, in in its colonizing, has got a... A sad history, but they were really not sure to take New Zealand at the very beginning. But they had a lot of interest in New Zealand with whales with, um, and trade in New Zealand and people in New Zealand. And in 1838 and 1839, Britain's hand was pushed by an unofficial company that sounded so official, whenever I read about it, I thought this was the government's agency called the New Zealand Company. But it was a private company that had been told you cannot do this in New Zealand. You cannot go and just take land or buy land off anyone for trinkets and axes and et cetera. You cannot do that. And they, they sold the promise to shiploads of, of people and they went out and they did exactly that. And so the Britain's hand was forced by um, Edward Wakefield and his brother as they came to New Zealand with shiploads of people. They sold land that they didn't own and said it's all going to be okay. And so they had to race ahead. and They were, His brother landed four months before the first ship of uh, settlers came to Wellington. And uh, he had four months to get as much land as he could. He, he signed off um, people who basically didn't have, when it was searched out and looked at, uh, from Britain in those days, didn't have the right to be able to sell the land. Eight million hectares at the top of the South Island, uh, New Plymouth, all down the Kapiti Coast, into Wellington as well. That's part of next week and the next time. But the, the British government were not caught completely by surprise. There had been a lot of preparation already done by them. And in Britain, an influential group of Christians from Holy Trinity Church in Clapham had brought huge social reform over a lifetime of prayer and social action. They were called the Clapham sect. Are are any of you familiar with that name? Just a few. William Wilberforce was one of the the key leaders of that. And of course, William Wilberforce um, was the MP who said, I'm going to change the slave trade. We were going to see it abolished. And he gave his lifetime to forcing the government again and again and again. And he was defeated and he was defeated year after year, defeated, defeated. But he had behind him this group of clergy and, and strong business people called the Clapham. They became known as the Clapham sect. They were called the Holy Rollers in their, in their time, the God Squad. And, and uh, one of the Clapham guys actually wrote the name and it stuck uh, for them. And, and finally, in 1807, he finally won his battle for the abolition of the Slave Trade Act. And, and this meant no more slaves traded throughout the, the British Empire. But what I didn't realize was it didn't mean that existing slaves within Britain would be freed. They thought there'll be a global financial crisis for us if we free all the people in slavery. So we passed the law in 1807, but it wasn't until 1833 that the Emancipation of Slave Act, the freeing of all the Slave Act, was actually passed. But you can imagine the amazing euphoria in the church and in Christianity as people were praying and MPs were working, Christian MPs were working, and in 1807 they get this breakthrough that slavery is not allowed to happen anymore. These guys got so guys and girls got so excited. They looked around to see, as well as continuing that to the point in eighteen thirty three where it came free, uh, completely, um, uh, f- all freedom for all slaves. Um, they looked around for anything else that they could do because they were s- such a social justice group. In other words, they believed in the kingdom of God. They believe the mandate in Luke chapter 4. They believe what Micah said, that that we're to work for justice. We're not to let it just lie. Maybe it started a generation ago or a hundred years ago, but it doesn't have to continue into the future. And they began to win. And look, these are some of the things that they went on to actually, actually do, if I can find them. They went on to start the Bible Society. We've got to get the Bible into people's hands. They started the Sunday school movement that spread across the nation of England and beyond. They abolished child labor. They improved the labor conditions in mines and factories. They founded the ragged schools that fed and educated over 300,000 underprivileged children in England. And they cleaned up London's drains. These are Christians who are fervent to see the kingdom of God affect society. And they also started a mission organization, an Anglican mission organization called the Church Missions Society, the CMS. And it was this society that sent missionaries out firstly into um, Australia, Samuel Marsden, and then Marsden came across into New Zealand. And in 1814, he preached that amazing first message on Christmas Day of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they also sent out a man called Henry Williams, who was, he wasn't a wimp Christian. He was an ex-naval uh, officer, ship's captain. He'd, he'd done battle in, in, uh, in, in the Navy. And when he came to Christ and he got ordained, he came to New Zealand. And, and he was a man that the Maori so respected, they carved a picture, a, a carving of him into the Treaty of Waitangi uh, treaty House because he affected Maori culture so much. There are stories of him going out between warring tribes and 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 convincing them that that they needed to stop their fighting and and come to a, a place of peace. Henry Williams is an amazing man in our in our history. And Stephen James Jr. Um, was or Stephen James was the one he was the lawyer who who worked in government who drafted William Wilberforce's Um, parliamentary act that got passed in 1807. He died uh, in the 30s, but his son also became a lawyer and he dedicated his whole life to the emancipation of slaves and he was the one that drafted the legislation that finally got approved in 1833. And he was then, became the permanent undersecretary for the colonies in 1836. See, this is Christian's influencing the way things would happen in New Zealand. And from that position in the British government, he decreed that indigenous people, i.e. the Maori people, were to be protected and the principle of racial equality must be upheld in how Britain would approach Maoris, or approach New Zealand. And his boss, the secretary for the colonies, was Lorne Glenelg. And he was another son of of the Clapham sect, uh, a Clapham sect member. And he was the one who commissioned Hobson to make a treaty. And it was to be implemented on a shoestring budget, because Britain not only wasn't sure they wanted to take New Zealand, but they also didn't want to put a lot of money into the taking of it. And so these two Christians figured out that if they involved the missionaries, they could do the whole thing on a shoestring budget. (laughs) So there were not two parties, but there were three in the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. And Glen Egg instructed Stephen to draw up the terms of the treaty, where Britain would oversee responsibility for its own British subjects, and they would ensure adequate protection for the Maori people and their rights, and the introduction of self-government for the settlers. And such a covenant would be unique in colonial history. And Hobson was given written instructions from Glenelg, and this is a little bit of what it says. I have already stated that the British government acknowledges New Zealand as a sovereign, independent state. This is before the treaty. So far it is possible to make that acknowledgement, in favor of a people composed of numerous dispersed and small tribes. But the admission of their rights, though, inevitably qualified by this declaration, is still binding on the faith of the British crown. This is the British government determining that what is going to be done will be binding upon them. And then then he writes this, However, the queen disclaims for herself and for her subjects, every pretension to seize the island of New Zealand or to govern them as part of the dominion of Great Britain unless the free and intelligent consent of the native people expressed according to their established usage shall first be obtained. And that's why it's a unique treaty across Britain's history. And so Hobson came to Waitangi and Busby, who was a British British, person of standing, and Hobson wrote the treaty articles, and Henry Williams and his son, who had become quite a specialist in Maori language, translated it. And then Henry Williams used his influence to persuade the Maori chiefs to sign. And without the Clapham sect and the missionaries, there would never have been a treaty of Waitangi. He courted, Williams courted the chiefs, and he explained that this was the British government honoring their request for protection, And without his endorsement, there would never, ever have been a treaty. And just as we, the church, were in the conception and the signing of this treaty document in our country, God has plans and has always planned that the church will still be involved in the outworking of it in 2018, 2019, 2050, 2070. Two peoples actually respecting each other, laying down prejudice and domination. It's an amazing, amazing vision. Acknowledging together that we're actually better when we work heart, hand and heart together and living in ways that can show the world what the kingdom of God can look like. And we don't know how to do this. No one in New Zealand knows how to do it. But the God whom we serve, who is directing you and directing me, knows exactly how to do it and how to lead you and how to lead me in relating amazingly and openly and honouringly with much aroha between races. The Lord God has told us what is right and what he demands. See that justice is done. Let mercy be your first concern and humbly obey your God, everybody in New Zealand. So next time I want to share some more interesting and exciting as well as challenging and saddening stories. And I want to specifically look at how God views covenants because that is how the Maori people saw what they were doing on that day. It was not a tool Death do us, no, it was until death do us part, not till I don't feel like it anymore. Obligation.